You, know, you should do something that's good for people, society, the world, while you're also making money. Because you've got internally derived meaning and sort of social status meaning combined simultaneously. I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good. David, uh, I'm someone who probably, I consider myself motivated, but sometimes it's a little hard to wake up in the morning, <laughs> get out of bed. Do you have any tips or any thoughts exactly on motivation and what we should be thinking about in terms of achieving and trying to achieve uh, success and happiness and all those kinds of things? Okay, well, that's a lot of things to it's start a lot, with. It's a lot. <laughs> I, I think we'll move the last one out the way first, and that sure. is... If we follow what we know from ancient Greek philosophy through to modern neuroscience, you shouldn't aim to be happy. Mm. You should aim to flourish, and the consequence of flourishing is very often that you will end up being happy. So we get people like Martin Seligman, you know, and he's really the, the father-slash-grandfather of positive psychology, and he used to consistently use happiness, happiness, happiness. And... He's now changed who he called his last really important book, Flourishing. And I think that was really important. And the, you know, the newest person in that area, Sean Aker, his you know, really important book is called Before Happiness. All the things that if you can implement in your life, you're likely to end up happy as a consequence of the habits you've established. Mm. And I suppose that's a good way to get into where we, we started there, which is how to be motivated. So I suppose there's a, a few really important angles here. There's an awful lot of assumption in our capitalist world that we are predominantly extrinsically motivated, that we're motivated to do things for what we can have if we do them. Like we'll put more hours in to get more money. We'll put more hours in to get more you know, externally determined status. We'll put more hours in... Um, you know, in order to be able to afford a better holiday sometime next year. And this extrinsic motivation idea has been very normal in marketing and very, well, was very normal in social psychology for a while. But most of the recent research, you know, has crashed extrinsic motivation to the mat, actually arguing that the majority of people are far more intrinsically motivated, even if they've not reflected very deeply on you know, who am I, what do I want to be? There's still some things where their brain just goes, yeah, I want to do that. And more often than not, it's things that will enhance their sense of well-being, their sense of accomplishment, their sense of connectedness. So if we use Martin Seligman's five categories for positive um, psychology, uh, PERMA, positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning and accomplishment, now, all these things tend to be intrinsic motivators. You want all five of them whether you really know it or not because they're so core to being human and that most people are more satisfied if they can achieve those five things. Some money on top is good. Some more time next year for a holiday is good, but not at the cost of achieving positive emotions, a sense of engagement, relationships, meaning provide, and accomplishment. Um, for the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation? Yeah, there's a, a wonderful one from Eric Fromm, and I can't remember which of 
you know, his books it's in. Eric Fromm was a, a really fascinating, I think he was a psychiatrist, might have been a psychologist, you know, wrote books predominantly in the 1960s. And his way to explain intrinsic and extrinsic motivation was to him it was the difference between having things or becoming something. So having and becoming were the big issues for him. And he found two poems written about the same flower. And one was by a Japanese poet. And this is the sort of idea of becoming in the Japanese poem, where the Japanese poet is you know, walking through the forest, comes into an open glade, and there is this beautiful flower to the edge of the path. And the Japanese poet just you know, goes down onto his knees and looks at the flower and then gets up and moves to the other side of it and looks at it again. Everything is about enjoying what it is, but not destroying it. Or not, It didn't have to be his flower. What was beautiful was that the flower was in the world, and he could look at it, it could inspire him to write the poem, and then he could get up and walk away, and as he left the clearing, he could look around, and the flower was still there, but also the flower was in his head. It had had a dramatic impact on him, it had become a part of him, it had added to how he you know, made sense of the world and poetry. The European poet, on the other side, had to have the flower. So in the European poet's poem, you know, he walks down the path, there at the bottom of a wall is the little flower, he's gobsmacked by how beautiful it is, picks the flower, and as the poem goes along, the thing gradually wilts over the rest of the day in his hand, and he has to acknowledge that in order to have it, he's destroyed it. So... In, in, the European poet, by having to have it, destroys it for anyone else and in the end destroys it for himself. Because what he realises by the end of the poem is that by having to have it, it's gone. His memory of it is less of the beautiful flower that was growing at the bottom of the wall and more of watching it wilt in his hands. Mm. And I think, you know, I don't remember from going into this aspect of it, but it's quite a big nasty statement also about capitalism and the need to fulfill yourself through buying the next thing. Mm. That whatever you have, the shine disappears pretty quick off most things. And then you need to have the next thing and have the next thing. It's an interesting time to be alive at the moment where more and more people spend more and more money not to have things, but to go and experience things. And in going through the experience, they add something to their brain, their experience of life, their way to see the the world, the things they look forward to. So ironically, at the moment, even though we live in sort of a hyper-capitalistic world, there seems to be more and more people who are recognising without any encouragement that experience is more important because it taps into those critical things of positive emotion, engagement, relationship meaning accomplishment and that that is more satisfying or everyone needs some degree of physical resources everyone needs safety everyone ideally uh, wants to feel like they belong everyone wants to feel loved and ideally eventually we all want to self-actualize you know if we want to go back to maslow's hierarchy but that having more physical things doesn't help beyond a certain point achieve those internal intrinsic drives to become the person you want to be which one is more has has more value which one of the two would you say achieves more i think an important thing here is to acknowledge that no one is going to be all intrinsic or all 
extrinsic mm. because we all do want nice things. We all do want some social status. We all do want a nice holiday at some point in the future. But we all also want to feel good about what we did in our day and how we treated people and how we were treated by other people and you know, all sorts of intangibles. So you know, finding the balance in yourself where you are most satisfied and you get the outcome where you're happiest with your balance of motivations. So we've gone from a period where extrinsic motivation has been massively overvalued by the corporate world. They think if they pay people more money, they'll somehow get significantly better outcomes. You know, a lot of corporations have found the more money you pay people, the more ruthless the environment becomes, the more ruthless people rise in the environment, and the more people who need something more from work quit and go work somewhere else. So across the corporate world, we see the rise of companies where the remuneration package is good, but the really important add-on a company can offer is to say, look, we genuinely value the corporate culture. We genuinely value that if you need to only work a four-day week so you can be home more with your little kids or your partner, do it. So we're seeing more and more a shift towards finding balance. So really what we're seeing happen in a lot of environments now is people are having to work out what balance they want between having things and kind of meeting intrinsic needs and wants to grow and become the person they want to be, and then finding a way to fit themselves into organisations and cultures where the balance is similar. So I think this is the thing. You know, we hear so much in the media now about how you know the millennials are struggling to find meaning in work. Mm. Well, I don't think it's any surprise. You know, millennials have grown up in the main more socially connected thanks to technology as we were talking about in the last episode now mm. that may not be deep enough it may not be messy enough but they can't be convinced by cash and long hours the way generations before them can be mm. because if you're going to spend so much of your day at work and you are so used to being socially connected through you know your phone or your laptop if the workplace is damaging in terms of social connectedness that's no longer acceptable. Now, if we look at some of the surveys in the US where productivity in companies is going down and staff satisfaction, you know, some companies is below 20% of staff like coming to work. 80% mm. of people, the thing they do five days a week for the majority of their wake hours, they can't stand. That can't just be a question of they want more money because every survey that goes deeper says that's not what they want. They want to feel valued, they want to feel engaged, they want to feel connected, they want to feel it matters. So part of this question of which is more valuable, intrinsic or extrinsic, uh, comes down to the deeper question of how should societies define meaning? Or even the self. I mean, is do you think that meaning is entirely defined by the society that you live in like i don't necessarily feel that what i find meaning in is is in the cultural majority no and i think this is a really important thing if we go to the extreme end and we have the you know the existentialist philosophers at one end <laughs> they'd say that you make all your own meaning mm. because the world is meaningless well in jean-paul sartre's perspective the world is meaningless in albert camus perspective the world is absurd mm. now whether you want to live in a you know a meaningless world that makes you nauseous or an absurd world that makes you grimace. 
The point is you're responsible for deciding what matters and deciding what you're going to do about it. And the real big difference between Sartre and Camus is Sartre's existentialist is always alone. Whereas Camus, well, I won't say existentialist because Camus didn't like being called an existentialist. So <laughs> Camus' person <laughs> can recognise that someone else has the same grimace. Mm. Going, this is absurd. Hey, but there's a person over there who gets it's absurd. Hey, we just smiled at each other. Awesome. There's community. Mm. So what I think it's really important to sort of establish is that meaning can be broadly defined by a society as a whole. Mm. And I would argue that that is more often than not a tool to make sure that people can self-regulate, a tool to make sure that people know how to be a part of the society, a tool to discipline the population to acceptable behaviour. So societal level meaning is predominantly for control and cohesion. I would argue that most of us, we kind of vaguely know what the social rules are, and we live within them because it makes life nicer. But most of us have much smaller communities of affinity where it's people who genuinely see the world in ways we find interesting or that we can share with mm. or that we gain from engaging with them. And, and I think this is why it's so important you know, in positive psychology that Seligman put engagement and relationship so high up in the five characteristics. You know, PERMA sounds good as an acronym. Positive emotion, engagement, relationship, meaning and accomplishment. Mm. Well, if we turn it around, it becomes AMRAP. And I don't like AMRAP. <laughs> AMRAP sounds terrible. <laughs> but PERMA gets to the essence of where meaning lies. And that is in engagement in things and relationship with other people. So you know, the core aspect of meaning is going to be who's your group of people that you can share what you believe in with them and which group of people can you know most significantly impact you to behave in a way because you genuinely want to engage with them and be a part of what they do rather than just comply to have a quiet life in society mm. so there's always going to be a dualism in meaning there's always going to be a dualism of having to go i need to fit in this society because i don't want to attract the attention of power and also I need to have people around me who matter, who I can share things with that matter to all of us in the group. And intrinsic and extrinsic are much the same. Intrinsic is who do I want to be? But you have to make sense of that within a society founded on democratic politics, capitalism, the media showing us images of perfection at one level and the horror of what humans do to humans at the other. <laughs> so I guess ironically we kind of get into a point here of just accepting that in everything we're talking about today, there's always a dichotomy between the two extremes. And the people who claim to be any of these extremes are kind of the abnormal edges. <laughs> that most of us are kind of comfortably or uncomfortably, depending on how we've resolved these issues, somewhere between the extremes. Mm. On intrinsic, extrinsic, you know, personally defined meaning, socially defined meaning, uh, belonging to small group and still belonging to the big group. Mm. So the reason I was asking what achieves more is because clearly in the corporate sector, at least the old school thought was that you could incentivize people extrinsically. The question that I have leading on from that is there are jobs that I think that it is incredibly hard to find even 
socially or personal meaning in. So I don't know, let's say the sales for some kind of telecommunications or something like that, you're on the phones, something like that. How how can someone justify that what they're doing is is meaningful? This is sort of the huge question of you know, kind of modern capitalism. Mm. We all know it's not really working well enough and it's not engaging people enough. And I think this is where the conscious capitalism movement is really fascinating, where it's this idea of you should try to do good while you're doing well. You, know, you should do something that's good for people, society, the world, while you're also making money. Because that way you've got intrinsic and extrinsic covered. You've got internally derived meaning and sort of social status meaning combined simultaneously. And I can't give you a telecommunications example, but I can give you a wonderful airlines example. Okay. You know, I can't remember the Southwest Airlines logo precisely, but the essence of the logo is our job is to make people happy, uh, but by the way, we fly aeroplanes. Mm. So the point is not that they fly aeroplanes. The point is that they want people to get off the plane at the other end of their trip happy and looking forward to what they do next and having enjoyed being on their plane. See, that's interesting because in their mission statement, you're kind of being an extrinsic motivator for the consumer in some respect, as well as an intrinsic one in in that you're able to socialize with other people. But the fact that you're an airline is an extrinsic motivator for the customer, but an intrinsic one for, I guess, the service provider. Precisely. We're at that weird point again of you have to balance the dichotomy. Because for anything to work well, it has to be economically viable. But for anything to last, it has to be personally valued. So the you know the juggling in the corporate sector now is you know how to be you know personally valued by people, but also to be economically viable. And the airline industry seems to go through the most brutal ups and downs of this. You know, a low cost carrier will come along and go, ha ha, our price is so cheap, someone will fly us just because it's cheap. And we've seen that here in Australia. You know, oh, yeah. Tiger was ridiculously cheap, but also you couldn't rely on arriving on the day you left. <laughs> so what's the point of cheap when there was no service? But again, that service level was less of a intrinsic-extrinsic thing, more just inefficient service. Mm. That was unacceptable. But let's look at, say, the roller coaster that someone like Qantas has been through. You know, a, a global carrier, highly regarded. But you know, when Virgin... Australia was doing well under Richard Branson. Mm. Qantas staff looked sour, behaved sour. They lost market share. <laughs> Once Qantas realised, actually, if people don't like getting on the plane, they don't fly with you because now everyone's relatively expensive. Well, no, air fares are still you know, cheaper proportionally than they have been for decades. Mm. But th- there's not the disparity there used to be between companies. So now it's, well, you know, if we're having to pay either way, what are you offering to make my trip nicer? So that balance in the corporate world is is a fascinating one. How do we be economically, you know, viable, but also personally valuable to our staff and our clients? And it seems to me, you know, particularly based on work of people like Raj Sasodia in his book Firms of Endearment, where he found there are these companies that spend nearly nothing in advertising, but because they treat their staff and their customers well, as well as providing a good product. And being economically viable. You know, the companies he looked at before the GFC all came out of the GFC bigger and stronger than they went in. And that's quite an achievement. And in most cases, these conscious capitalism companies 
who balanced, you know, doing good while doing well, kept growing when other companies went under because their staff were more committed, their customers could see why the product couldn't be discounted, the investors could see why, well, I have to take a long view with this. This is not about, you know, speculative investment for six months. This is about having shares in a good company that does the right thing and will be here in decades. So it seems we're at the beginning of what could be a massive transformation towards balancing intrinsic and extrinsic meaning in the corporate world and internally derived meaning and broadly defined meaning. And that that is really important. And you know, it's why when I'm asked to teach stuff on leadership now, I have to make the distinction that, well, most of the literature to me now, the old literature is now irrelevant because it's from a bygone era of believing in the dominance of extrinsic motivation, the certainty that capitalism will keep working without reform, that you can you know, sucker in customers with lack advertising to buy more crap. I don't think we're in that anymore. Now, we're not in something definitely better yet, but it seems more and more questions are being asked by more and more people. They're less and less satisfied with the status quo of being told to be consumers, of being told to be extrinsically motivated, and being told that what they have defines them. It appears to me that there's not just a dichotomy between the extremes of how people are motivated in terms of whether it's a societal or a personal thing. And this is getting on the existentialist thing again, that there's also a dichotomy between, or maybe even a tension between the fact that everything that you're motivated to do, is you're enacting out in a physical world. And so therefore it is somewhat extrinsic. Yeah. It's interesting that you're, you're saying that companies that are able to intrinsically motivate their employees, I think is your conscious capitalism argument, were able to, they were financially succeeding as well. Is yeah. that because, is that in part due to the fact that they weren't having to pay their employees as much? Is that? Interestingly, a lot of the conscious capitalism companies, they pay above the average wage in their industry, mm. but they tend not to pay exorbitant wages. because they're offering people a better quality of life at work as a substitute for more pay. So things like Whole Foods Market in America, when the GFC happened and, you know, John Mackey realised they'd been through a huge growth period and that the GFC could create havoc because they're a high-end supermarket and they were providing, you know, food for people in the main who had money to spend Mm -hmm. and who were often most hit by the GFC. So John Mackey, you know, stuck a letter up in every store basically saying, look, Staff can't afford to give you pay rises. Customers can't afford to discount what we sell. Suppliers can't afford to pay you any more. But what we're going to try and do is get through this without abusing any part of this connected community along the way. If everyone can just, you know, survive paying the prices, being paid the same price, being paid the same wages, we can get through this. And what was fantastic is all the major investors behind Whole Foods backed them. Staff and customers stayed as loyal as they could. And when things got better, the customers, the staff and the suppliers were all still there and the investors were still smiling. And your Whole Foods is the most overt example because John Mackey is a brilliant uh, sort of charismatic 
public speaker. He's good at getting people interested in his company's story. Well, it, not his company anymore. It's now owned by Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, and I would hate to guess what he's going to manage to do to Whole Foods. Mm. But the positive thing is now I think we're beyond the point where even if Jeff Bezos wrecks Whole Foods, that you know any individual could now wreck the conscious capitalism movement. My experience of working with small companies and medium-sized companies is they know in the hard conditions of the Australian economy they can't pay people more money. So they have to focus on, well, what else can we do for people? They know they can't offer a lower price than an imported good in a lot of cases. But what can they offer that makes it worth paying more for an Australian product? The, the equation now has to be a much broader equation in order to succeed. And, you know, this is something it would be fun to talk about with, you know, Paul one day, mm. what he thinks of it because, you know, he's come out of a very traditional period in the US economy that ended in the GFC because Wall Street refused to acknowledge that the world had changed and consequently went down in a screaming heap to be rescued with our money. It's interesting that, see, when I was listening to you talk about Whole Foods, it sounded as if, and I'm not saying this is what drove John Mackey's uh, perspective, but what I was hearing was not only were people being treated genuinely and honestly, but what was a result of that was confidence and confidence in the business that they were doing, right? Absolutely. And that is an, an economic must. It, it is what can make crashes like the GFC worse mm. and yeah. often does. Without confidence, things go down a screaming heap because without confidence, all there is is speculation. And, you know, I'll go back to something that, you know, we talked about multiple times in class this semester, that in order to be confident, people have to first be competent. Mm. But and, that, it's not actually, that's not even measured though. No. And, you know, this is why to my mind... Um, we need to start understanding risk in a whole new way in the corporate world and in the investment world because if we have competent people using a stakeholder relationship management model which says never play a zero-sum game, always play a plus-sum game, if something's going to be good for the company, it has to be good for the staff, the customers and the investors or so don't do it. Can you please just um, explain zero and plus sum games for me? Absolutely. The, the classic model, you know, in supposed quote unquote, you know, ruthless conventional capitalism is a zero sum game. I I win if I can take money away from you because I've either got the power or I'm smart enough to get you to give up that money. Inevitably, I've got that extra money, but you are now going. Well, I was hard done by. I was manipulated. I was ripped off. So as a consequence of me winning financially, I've lost you as a potential ally. Mm. That's the essence of a zero-sum game. Whereas, you know, uh, R. Edward Freeman, who's the, the really bright guy who writes about stakeholder relationship management, has argued if you look historically at successful companies, well, pretty much all successful institutions, they play a plus-sum game. They play a game where they go, if we want to do well, we need partners who are in this with us. And, you know, if we're going back to acronym land again today, like PERMA in positive psychology. And for stakeholder relationship management, the acronym is SPICE. That as an institution or, you know, a company, you need to make sure that whatever you do ideally has a positive for society, for your partners, for your investors, for your customers and for your employees. 
So anytime you do something that's meant to be good for one group, it needs to be good for more than that one group. And when things are difficult, you can't rip off your employees for the benefit of your customers or your investors because without your employees, how are your customers and investors going to interface with the company? Mm. So, you know, current greedy, ruthless leftover capitalism would argue that the plus-sum game is economically unviable, which is the point where I'm going to jump in alongside Ari Freeman and go, hang on, what's economically viable doing as the only judgment of business or an organisation or a company? Being economically viable is important, but more important than that is creating value that people value. And the more kinds of people value what you do, the more they're likely to be loyal and engaged and go, well, that's a bit dearer, but it's better and I deal with good people and the good people support me and that company's well-connected to society and, yes, they pay dividends to their investors but not at the cost of screwing their employees. That The whole plus-sum game thing seems odd until you realise, well, how did capitalism originally grow? It grew by creating value, by people wanting to work together, by people wanting the opportunities. And all right, then we get into the whole period of the population explosion once we have the basics of public health and hygiene in place and then we need to incorporate more people into the economy. All sorts of other things come into play. Mm. But initially when capitalism is new, you look back at the original companies and the original innovators. They tend to work with people to get good outcomes for everyone because you needed everyone on board to make it work because what you were doing was uncharted territory. And in uncharted territory, you need everyone to be on the same page to go, this is what we're trying to achieve and we do it by working together effectively. So there's all sorts of interesting examples during the Industrial Revolution. So if we look at a historical example of a place where capitalism grew, we'll look at a city like Sheffield in the United Kingdom which you know has a history of making cutlery and small complex tools, hand tools. And it was full of lots of small companies. But what's been really interesting as historians go back and look, and even political theorists are going back and looking at places like Sheffield because of the level of social capital. And what they're finding as they go back and look is, in a lot of cases, these small companies, they kind of competed a bit which kept everything effective, you know, value for money, quality was improving. But if a big contract came out that one company couldn't supply on their own, they'd quickly go and get a couple more companies to help them bid to make sure they got the big contract. And lots of specialist skills where a little company couldn't afford to have someone on the books all the time, but two or three companies together could give someone enough work to always be working so that that person would go back and forth between two, three or four companies and the companies would go, well, we need their specialist skill, we can't afford them full time, so we need to be flexible about when other companies need them because otherwise we all lose the talent. Mm. So there was this amazing sense in Sheffield and you know, there's now seven or eight big studies on other early industrial cities that show the same thing, I'm just less familiar with them than Sheffield, that show that in the period of incredible growth in early capitalism, there was this social connectedness because we're talking about people who'd lived in smaller, connected, collective communities. When they jumped into the industrial world, they didn't 
surrender their sense of sort of connected collectivity. They didn't want to be isolated. They didn't want to be in competition. They wanted to be still part of communities that, okay, some competition is good. Competing to do a better job is good for the quality of the product. But you don't want a ruthless competitiveness that destroys everyone you beat. You wanted a competitiveness that eventually raises the entire level of what's going on. It's funny talking about stakeholders that this extrinsic and intrinsic motivation almost applies. It's a bit abstract, but it applies to business in terms of the difference between stakeholder and stockholder theory, Mm. where stockholders are maybe your extrinsic, it's your money and stakeholders, i.e. your customers, your employees, the environment in which you're in are your stakeholders. Yes, they're your stakeholders. So they're your intrinsic motivation. You're treating people within your company nicely as opposed to the capital venture. Mm. (laughs) It's funny that the extrinsic and extrinsic motivation almost applies to that. Yeah, and this is going to be, I think, why growing the conscious capitalism world is going to take time because there's no doubt that most people want to be somewhere where they're both you know, doing good and doing well. Mm. But for the investor who just wants a return, big deal. Yeah. yeah. And and this is the problem now. You know, it used to be that the average stock was sold, what was it, every seven years or something. And it's now down to something like every seven months. It's a ridiculous turnaround. We're now in a phase where investment is running on pure pointless speculation. Mm. And I call it pointless because all it's doing is making dollars. It's not making value. And capitalism always had to make money. It had to be economically viable. But in its earlier forms, it served some value creation purpose. And it's value creation that has pulled most of the world's population out of abject poverty, not just money creation. Value creation allowed people to do more, be more, affect their own futures, take control of their own lives, Imagine a better society, a better world. And to just skim cash off the top now and go, that's all business is about, is to diminish what business is and what people are. Not to mention that for those people that were, let's say, benefiting off it, but they probably weren't finding it all that fulfilling. No. And that's what led to you know the craziness of Wall Street in the 80s where you know how many stories have you heard about, like let's even just look at, Hollywood examples of, let's say, Wolf of Wall Street or um, American Psycho, films like that where you just see um, extravagance, opulence and just craziness where essentially Wall Street guys are trying to fill the the hole in their lives with cocaine. But <laughs> mm. um, And that's the thing. If extrinsic reward works so well, mm. um, why is it every survey says that beyond a certain point money doesn't make you happier? Yeah, You need enough money to be safe. You need enough money to be able to do some nice things. You need enough money to know you're okay on a rainy day. But beyond that point, there is no evidence that more wealth does anything for human flourishing. So you know, this raises another you know, very difficult question then economically, and that is how is it that investors are so important to the business world, but they are so totally and utterly out of tune with what would make better business that creates more value for everyone. It seems to me that when you get stuck in the game of 
how much money do you earn that it becomes a comparative thing and it's the thin yeah. it's a thin slice that you compare yourself with other people yeah and we we all will compare to the tribe we're in our group of people most immediate like us how are we doing in that group so i suppose a big thing that i see is the the real power of stakeholder relationship management is acknowledging as small as you want to think your world is it's bigger than that mm. and reminding people that that is the case so you know i guess what well, not that we need to hope for it, but I think what needs to happen is, you know, we're all meant to now be contributing to our own superannuation, to you know, <laughs> developing the ability to retire in comfort, something that, you know, the vast majority of humans for all of human history have not managed to do. They've grown old and died. <laughs> they didn't grow old and live comfortably and then die. <laughs> it's nice to give this a go, but we're doing a brand new thing. New things are always difficult. But in the process of going along and doing this new thing, yeah, we spoke about it last episode or the episode before, can't quite remember now, but the need for more financial literacy, mm. that we need to work out what we're going to do with our little bit of money to set up our future. Because, yes, we need returns, but we'll be far more satisfied if our returns led to companies that kept creating value, looking after stakeholders, and in the end built value far greater than economic profit. There are more and more investment firms and funds now based around quote-unquote ethical investment. Yeah. But that is very often defined more in environmental terms Mm. than in terms of having or becoming or intrinsic or extrinsic. So I would like to see those, those ethical investment funds and firms actually have a proper definition of what ethical means. There should be hedge funds based around, like I've definitely seen, let's say Forbes produce the 100 best companies to work at. Mm. And more often than not, they're within the top 200 performing companies of the country that they're based in. Yep, and they're normally the younger companies, Yeah, which means the others are bigger because they're older. They're from the period where extrinsic reward was enough because life was hard. Mm. Whereas what we see is in young companies... If you can't change to engaging and embracing people, you probably won't become an old company. That all seems kind of glim. What can we do on a person-by-person basis to encourage, let's say, a new society? What What is it that I can be doing on a day-to-day basis to make sure that I'm making in- intrinsically motivated decisions? I think probably... Everyone's got to find their own balance in the intrinsic, extrinsic, you know, sort of dichotomy. You know, how much do you need to have more money versus how much do you need to self-actualize and become the person you want to be and have the kind of experiences that will allow you to flourish? Mm. That's a very personal one. But I think the biggest thing people can do once they've got a sense of balance in that is start seeing life as a plus-sum game. I want to do well in this deal. But surely I'm going to get someone to go into what I want to do with me sooner if they can do well as well. You know, I want to you know, get this experience, so I need to go and you know, do something with this organization. I need something from them, but what can I give them back that will add value to them that makes it useful for them having me around? That the more people can see that plus some games are the way to make sure that everyone is more invested because everyone can see it's not about them taking something from someone else. It's about the mutual creation of new enhanced value. 
Mm. So a classic example of this is, you know, two people partner up, become a couple. If you partner up with someone who helps your world be bigger and you help their world be bigger, essentially a good relationship is one plus one is three. Mm. You don't just put two small worlds together because you bring new and strange and surprising things to someone else's world. The world is genuinely bigger and different and you know, it, it's a massively overused world. But there starts being a bit of awe in life. You start encountering things you didn't know existed. Yeah, awesome has become this word we just throw around now. now <laughs> awesome means it's be you know it's beyond description and normal experience. It's a big important word. But if we're genuinely creating value by going for plus sum games, you know how can I get something out of this? How can someone else get something out of this? How do we both win? That's heading us down a genuinely awesome path of creating new exciting value, whether that be emotional experiential or you know in terms of actual financial resources if we can manage all three how can we not win and i think this is what is so frustrating is being in a world where everything we need is available to do better it's about changing minds not about needing physically different things to be present and that the best way to get people i think to genuinely behave better to start behaving in a plus some way is don't tell people what to do show them what it looks like behave in a way in the world where you win and the person you were doing something with wins and if you see them doing the same thing keep engaging with them (laughs) if you see them go oh that was nice you let me have a bit of a victory but i'm going to go rip this other person off (laughs) stop interacting with them The, the most powerful thing we have over any other human being is not what we can do for them but that we can withdraw from them. You know, being socially connected is such a powerful thing for our species. If you want to you know, have an impact on someone's behaviour, withdraw your time and attention and they'll have a freak out very quickly. Now, how many times have you seen that at university or in a part-time job? That someone in the group behaves in a way that other people find offensive, so the group pulls away from that person. Yeah. What's the normal consequence once they feel isolated? Exclusion is probably among the worst of yeah. uh, human kind of pains. Yeah. If you're setting a good example and people keep behaving badly, mm. invest your time in someone who will behave well mm. because exclusion is actually the most diabolical tool we have. And it can be very hard to exclude people because we know how painful it is. All humans do. Yeah. From the time at age three, you start realizing there's a world outside of family. And there's all these <laughs> other little three-year-olds who are also egomaniacs. What's so. it like to be the three-year-old egomaniac <laughs> who's left out? Because on that current day, you're not off in the right land of unicorns and rainbows. See, that's the thing that teaches you that the world isn't about you. <laughs> Precisely. But it, it's always under your control how you're going to contribute to the world. Because you can decide how and when to engage and with who, and you can always withdraw that engagement. And you know, it's something that became apparent to me within months of starting to teach at university. If you keep including the class, the class like it, they come along. Mm. When they don't behave the way you want, don't have a tirade at them. It has no impact. Yeah. Simply withdraw. It has a faster impact of changing a group if you are in a position of authority and you're respected. If you suddenly lose interest in engaging with them, they want to know why. 
It gets better behavior faster than anything else I've ever experienced. And it comes back to that saying that if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, take your friends with you. Is that precisely? Yeah. There's multiple variants of it. But yeah, if you <laughs> want to get somewhere, take your friends. Mm. And again, friends can be a loosely defined term. It doesn't have to be your best friends. It just has to be people who you've agreed to treat well and they're beginning to value being treated well. Perhaps that's something we can talk about another time, actually, because I know that you have interesting views on how often we use the word mate Yes. in Australia. I'd love to hear your opinions on friends and interpersonal relationships, but that is an appropriate amount of time, I think, to finish on, unless you've got anything else to add. No, I just wanted to say thank you once again, Tim. Anytime. It's good to have you on, David.